Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I wanted to say thank you to all of our new listeners in Canada. Our numbers went really high over the last few weeks from our neighbors to the north here in the United States. And I'm so grateful and I'm glad it's resonating with you. Please be in touch and let us know which episodes really resonated and why and what's happening in your land, in your provinces. For today, we have Lily Dunn. She's an author and mentor. Her memoir, Sins of My Father, A Daughter, A Cult, A Wild Unraveling, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And her novel, Shadowing the Sun, by Portobello Books in 2007. She has personal essays in Granta, Litro, Hinterland, and is a regular writer for Aon Magazine. She is in her final writing up year of her doctorate at Birkbeck University of London and is interested in how to integrate the therapeutic power of writing with literature. She is co-editor of A Wild and Precious Life, Recovery Anthology with Zoe Gilbert. She teaches creative writing at Bath Spa University and co-runs London Lit Lab. Let's check out my conversation with Lily now. I'm so happy to have Lily Dunn on the show. There are many questions that I would love to have you answer, but the first one is if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, Rachel. I'm Lily Dunn. I'm a writer. I live in the UK. I started my career as a fiction writer and I was kind of haunted by the story of my father. I was sort of circling around it in my fiction and then I decided to write it as a memoir, which has been published by WNN here in the UK. It's called Sins of My Father, A Daughter, A Cult, A Wild Unraveling. And it's really about my quest to try and understand a man who was impossible to know, impossible to pin down. Um, And he joined the Rajneesh cult um, when he was in his sort of late 30s when I was six. Um, But he also did multiple other things um, which were kind of perplexing and and adventurous and and wonderful in equal measure. Um, So the book is full of quite extraordinary decisions and and life choices that he made and me trying to to fathom it and and make sense of it. My goodness, right. I mean, it it is a challenge in every situation, even if there isn't a cultic group involved, that as you go from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, you do see your parents in new ways, or you try to understand them in new ways. And so adding this other part of it that does make it much more murky and can also stand between you having that kind of closeness to really know your father is a very interesting added element to the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And it it wasn't just the cults. It was what I realized when I started to really think about this later after he died was that actually his behavior had been addictive really throughout his life. So he was always escaping something or escaping himself. And whether that manifested itself in the cult or in him being promiscuous within his marriage or being slightly deluded, being a compulsive liar, 
being a workaholic. And then in, in his last years, he turned to alcoholism very destructively. He only really drank for about 10 years, but he, he managed to kill himself from drinking and he died age 61. So I think, you know, just, just the sort of extremity of his life um, really sort of demanded that I just try and understand and try and really kind of dig into trying to work out what it was that he was escaping from. But yeah, going back to your point, also this, this sense, this murky central existence of of whether it is the cult or the addiction or the escape or or just not being able to be pinned down by people who loved him did make it really difficult and it made him very impossible to love and he was a very slippery being you know so you were always trying to read between the lines with him that's interesting because there's some people who are good at being evasive and they don't quite answer your question and you wonder why that is. And you get a maybe instead of a yes or a no or, you know, I'll tell you later or mm, I don't know. And it's it's hard to feel like their life is something tangible to you. What do you think made him so elusive and evasive? Looking back, knowing his history, I mean, you know, he was a product of boarding school. It's a very much a part of UK culture of men of a particular age. So this was in the 1950s. And he was um, sent to prep boarding school when he was seven years old. I think it was a very traumatic experience for him. And I only really realized this writing the book and, you know, asking his sister about his childhood and because he never talked about it. But he had mentioned to my mother that he was sexually abused at school. And there were certain boys who were picked on at school. My dad was a victim and a, and a target for that because he was very pretty. He was blonde. He was sensitive. He wasn't particularly academic. He wasn't particularly sporty, so he found school quite difficult. So I think he had a traumatic, formative time in his life at that time. So there is this sense in him that he was always trying to escape. He was always trying, he was always looking outside for stimulus or or for his happiness. I think also that boarding school taught young kids to lie because they had to protect their privacy and they they were forced to live a life that was not necessarily true to them and also live quite a split identity as well between the life that they had at school and the life they had at home, you know, which were inevitably were very different. And this was 1950s, you know, Britain was, you know, not a particularly kind of kind place. So I think the lying possibly came from his experience at school and him not really learning to articulate his true feelings, his true emotions, being able to express what he was feeling you know, you, you couldn't. I mean, you know, how, how would you be received by the people around you if you if you cried or if you said you were homesick or having a hard time? You know, you were you it was it was a, it was a punishing environment. He was sort of a, an odd mixture of somebody who was quite needy and quite insecure, but also what well, he was. A, he was a classic narcissist, actually. I mean, you know, he was he was super sensitive to being criticized. but. He was also very in need and very kind of needed to be loved, but also, but then was not very good at being needed. So I think that made him quite a difficult man to love. Right. I mean, there are some boarding schools here. It's not as woven into the culture. And a lot of people talk about it in not such glowing terms, even though there are some good memories at times as well. But it does shift your life and your personality in certain ways, depending upon your experience, and also how ready you were at the time to have to be on your own and kind of fend for yourself. 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, boarding schools going, at, you know, when you're 11 or 12 or 13 or even 15, you know, is a very different experience from going when you're seven. And and that was very much a culture at that time. So he was seven when he went to boarding school. And I think it's a ridiculously young age, isn't it, to be in the care of somebody else. And But the thing I found really interesting about it when I was researching my book was that he obviously didn't enjoy his time at boarding school, but he was there from the age of seven until he was 17, 18. And it was an institution. And actually what he was then drawn to when he left my mom, which was when I was six, and he was he was in his early 30s, I think, when he left my mom, and he joined the Rajneesh cult, was that he was going right back into an institution. And of course, on the outside, looking in, you know, you see... Of course, it's it's completely different from boarding school. I mean, it, it couldn't be any more different. It's a, it's a free sex cult, and and it was all about you know having no responsibilities and doing whatever your instinct or your your will drove you to do. And it you know it was very much came off the back of the sexual revolution and this sense of sort of you know self centeredness, I suppose, of satisfying yourself. But of course, when you look at it. Also, within the context of, of what it became, you know, with anyone who's watched Bardwell Country will know that it became very much an institution. It became very much a dictatorial place. People had to behave within the confines of the cult and they had to abide by the rules and they were ostracized or pushed out if they didn't do that. And so I was quite interested in the fact that, you know, even though it was so extremely different, he still needed to be in an environment where he was sort of somehow diluted you know because you're not you you know you're you're living in amongst lots of other people and also living to certain rules however different those rules may be so there was certainly a theme in his life where he was drawn to communities Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering then how he got involved. And I mean, you know, you're talking about the appeal and also being able to transform as the group transforms, going into this more constructed kind of environment and being okay with it, because that's something he was used to. But also, I think once people get involved in a community, they really do follow the wave that the group takes them on. When did he first learn about the group and what was the beginning like? Well, he lived with us. So uh, he he and my mom got married. My mom was 18. He was 19. They lived a really wonderful life in London. They um, were very much in love and they had, they created their own publishing company and was quite successful, you know, quite niche kind of science fiction and highly illustrated books and you know they had a a, a really kind of a cultish following cult but a different kind of cultish following and then he started to have affairs and he you know my mom didn't know about it but she sensed it and I think he just found conventional life challenging and he was restless and so it sort of started with affairs and then he fell in love with someone and then threatened to leave and then but didn't want to leave and my mom realized that he'd been living this slightly sort of double life and then my brother came along and then I came along. And by the time I came along, you know, you could call him a sex addict in that he was having multiple affairs. And he had this sense of himself that he was somehow kind of put on this planet to, you know, gift these women his his amazing being, you know, that that they were really lucky to have him. And that, that you know, he sort of took on a bit of a guru persona, I suppose, in a way, in his own little way. Very charismatic, very attractive. He obviously had women sort of falling at his feet. He sort of walked around a little bit like a film star. And then he disappeared out of our lives one day. So he just 
got up and left. And we didn't know where he where he was. We didn't know when he was coming home. And I was six. My brother was eight. He would have been, yeah, it was early 30s, I think, for him. And he phoned from, I think he, he reversed the charges from India and told mum that, that my, uh, my mom that he had met a woman in a, in a peep show in Soho and she had introduced him to his to her guru who was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and this was in 1979 and it was a time you know people if people know about the Rajneesh cults it was a time when it was really kind of reaching its peak Bhagwan had been holding um, his lectures or you know darshans or or whatever he called it in those days in 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 Pune in India for for some years you know probably i think since the late 60s and it had been quite an indian sort of local following and then europeans got wind of it and started to go to india and my dad was part of that influx of europeans um, and americans and canadians who went to the ashram so he phoned and my mom said, what about your children? You know, they, they want to know where you are. They miss you. And, you know, and I particularly, I think, was having a really hard time with it because I just didn't, I didn't understand how he could be there one minute and everything was fine and then just not be there. And to me, it felt like a kind of personal rejection. You know, I was only six. And he said to her, they can choose how they want to feel. They can choose to feel happy or they can choose to feel sad. It has nothing to do with me. So this was my mom's kind of first insight into that sort of psychology, I think, which, I mean, it wasn't her first insight into my dad being irresponsible and unable to take agency and responsibility for his actions. But I think the cults acted as a platform or, or a, a space where he could be fully himself, you know, and the worst, the worst aspects of himself, I suppose. So he disappeared and then he came back with this new girlfriend and me and my brother met him on the street in Hampstead High Street in London. And he was dressed in the colours of the sunset with a mala around his neck with his image of Bhagwan in a, in a central sort of glass, you know, and... A, wood framed disc on the necklace and he told us that he'd been reborn so me and my brother kind of looked at each other and and said oh well, you know that's strange we were, we were just completely bemused by it we didn't know quite how to respond but I remember thinking does that mean you're no longer our father you know does that mean that you are no longer the person that we knew he also proposed to my mom that he should move his new girlfriend into our home and that the girlfriend could live in the basement and he would live in the marital bed with my mom, get, you know, go back into his role as, as husband. And he would, he would move between his new girlfriend and my mom. <laughs> but um, yeah, at that point, my mom just turned to him and she said, you are absolutely bonkers. She was just like, that's not going to happen. So yeah, he was out. He was out. I mean, it's an interesting response. Right. Because there's there's a lot more that she could have said at that point. But, you know, you get a sense if you went on and tried to be reasonable or tried to express real emotion, it probably wouldn't get you anywhere. And sometimes people just intuit that they don't need to bother really trying to impress a certain kind of message to this person who seems to just want to be devoid of that kind of connected emotion and not having a sense of really what's right and wrong to a great degree emotionally for family and for children. 
That is so, that absolutely encapsulates it. And that was a, a kind of mentality that my dad carried on, you know, throughout my whole relationship with him was that it was very clear where we could go and where we couldn't go emotionally. And and I I, I was someone who, who wouldn't play the game, I suppose. You know, I did, I did confront him about various things that happened, um, various betrayals throughout my relationship with him. But it always, it you knew that you could only push him so far and then he would be really nasty and he would cut you off. He just could not confront the truth. Yeah, I think that's very poignant and pertinent, actually, because particularly at that early stage as well, you know, he came back and I remember thinking, you know, he was all dazed and and sort of, you know, looking off in, onto the horizon and his eyes were glazed and he was all sort of, much thinner and brown and his hair was long and you know he'd kind of taken on this persona of the disciple he was spaced out and that was also something that was very much uh, encouraged from the disciples and of course you know if you spent six months on an ashram in Pune doing dynamic meditation and you know sort of encouraged to to lose your mind and lose your critical faculty which is what they were then coming back to London and to your kids and to your wife and to your responsibility you're you're just not going to engage with that are you right no it's an interesting thing also when you see adults go into a space that feels very regressive and there's a shifting where you feel more adult than your parent. And you can handle certain emotions. You can take on challenges. You don't need to escape. You don't need to avoid. And I'm wondering if in those moments where you saw yourself, even when you were young, as sort of more capable of dealing with life than him, what did you think about him in those moments? Yeah, that's, again, it's such an interesting question. And, and that happened a lot. Um, and from a very young age, I remember a very distinctive moment. Uh, my dad moved. So when he soon after he came back from India and my mom sent him away, he moved to a community in Suffolk called Medina, which was a quite a large sannyasin community. And he lived there for some time. And we would visit for, for weekends. And that sense of regression, which was very much encouraged by Bhagwan, was evident all around me. So even to the point where adults would have these therapeutic sessions where they would dress up in their pajamas and take teddy bears out with them and they'd walk around and pretend to be children. I remember, you know, I was like age eight or something. And I just remember looking at these people and thinking, oh, my God, that's so weird, because it's like not even children behave like that. You know, it was so over the top. But also there, it was the first taste for us of, of the neglect, I suppose, of, of us not being treated like children and that we we were just dumped, really. We were taken, you know, we didn't see our dad and then we'd go and see him for the weekend and then he would just leave us for the weekend and he'd be off you know, with some new girlfriend or whatever. Um, and he'd occasionally sort of pass my brother a pound note to go and get a bit of food or whatever. And we just sit there on our Donkey Kong, you know, consoles. And we we had to find our own entertainment and, and get on with it. While around us, you know, there were all these, well, my dad was living there with his girlfriend, but he was clearly having a relationship with someone else. And, you know, this other woman had her arm around him and then that have these crazy discos where everyone would be waving their arms around in the air and their malas were swinging and you know it was a it was kind of a wild sort of animal farm and yeah it was the first it was the first 
introduction to us, I suppose, at the time that really we could not be kids. We could not have our dad in the way that we wanted to have him, you know, just sort of hanging out with us and asking us what we wanted to do and entertaining us, you know, spending time with us. I mean, it's like, you know, you sort of think, well, it's just such a given, isn't it? In a, in a kind of conventional, not even in, not even in conventional families. I mean, it's a given just in, even in divorce separated families, you know, that the dad would pick up the kids for the weekend and they'd take them on trips and they'd, they'd do stuff that kids wanted to do. And rather than, you know, we were just, we were just adages. We were just these sort of extra things that he felt obliged to have around. And I think, you know, that continued throughout my relationship with him, always the sense that he didn't really want us to be there. Hmm. Wow. You know, not only do kids want to be able to spend time with their parents, they want their parents to be interested in their lives. And I found a lot that when people have parents who get involved in a particular group, that the parent becomes so self-focused that even if they're spending time, they don't get a sense that the parent cares and the parent doesn't ask how's school going and, you know, who are your friends and what do you like to do? And so even with physical proximity, there's still this emotional distance. And I wonder if that, if he had any interest in what was happening for you in your life. No, he never, ever, ever, ever asked me about my life. I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, I did go to him, obviously, at various stages of my life and ask his advice on things, but he always took the position of the guru. (laughs) So he'd sit back and sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, you can love someone, but then sometimes you don't love them. And, you know, and that's okay. And how can we ever know where we're going to end up? And, you know, it was always this sort of slight sort of philosophical kind of riddle and and he also really, in the early days, you know, he really believed that he was on a, a journey towards enlightenment. I mean, you know, that he was special, that he was chosen, that he was sort of above and beyond the sort of normal, ordinary man. And that made it very difficult to relate to him on a normal level. He lived in Medina for a bit, and then he came back to England for a bit and lived in various flats in Hampstead. And then he moved to Italy, this beautiful big house in Italy. With he, he met a very young woman who he married. She was 18. And he, at this point, was in his late 30s. And they moved together to Italy and lived in this lovely big villa. And again, it was a commune. So they lived and worked with sannyasins and they carried on publishing books, which is what my dad was very good at, um, within this community. So my brother and I would go and spend our, our summers with him. And when I look back on that time, you know, all my memories are of me and my brother having a wild time. You know, we had a great time there. It was amazing. It was just outside, it was in Tuscany, just outside Florence. It was beautiful, beautiful weather. We could take our friends sometimes. And we had, you know, my dad would hire us scooters. And But the most of the memories are of me and my brother just having a wild time, having fun, playing, taking the scooters off to Taverna's and buying prosciutto panini and, you know, going to the outsides of Florence, you know, having a really wonderful time. But none of them are with my father. He occasionally would take us to Benetton shop in in Florence to buy us stuff (laughs) but we never looked at any of the sites we never went I mean you know it's like Florence you're in the midst of the most cultural historical beautiful architectural space you know we didn't see anything we just 
visited him in his house with his kooky friends who were all great, you know, some of them not as nice as others, and, you know, and, and hung out with each other, really. Or, or I was sort of hanging out with his friends or kind of trying to pin my dad down and trying to get some attention or hang out with him. And he was always slightly batting me away. So I think my brother quite early on sort of worked out he wasn't going to get what he needed from my dad. And so he was quite happy just to polish his Vespa or, you know, play with the cats or illegally drive up the drive or whatever he was doing. Whereas I, it wasn't so easy for me. I was always slightly in search of him or I would be hanging out with his wife, who was my stepmother, who was kind of like a sister. And I was, you know, I was around the adults a lot. And 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 that also was a time when I, I kind of was forced to grow up because of certain incidences that happened and, you know, where my dad didn't protect me. And I had to, I was forced to stand up for myself. Hmm. And what sort of incidences were those? Well, he, he had a friend who arrived who, I mean, I was 13 and he groomed me. He basically realized that I was very vulnerable and quite sad and, you know, in need of a dad's attention. He just sort of yeah invited me into his camper van read me his poetry you know I look back now and I just think oh my god it was just classic grooming and you know he was like in his late 30s and and you know and then tried to kiss me well we, we did kiss actually we tried to have sex with me you know it just it just kind of escalated but it was really tricky because I went to my dad and I told him what was happening my dad knew what was happening and I told him and and I asked him well initially I, I just said I don't know what to do dad it was, I don't feel comfortable with this you know it's I like his attention but I, I'm not interested in him sexually he, you know he wants something from me and dad was he said oh you know it's it's, you know, sometimes it's really good um, for, you know, for, for a young girl to have her first sexual experience with a man, um, you know, because he's he's wiser and he's experienced. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, what? You know, even at the age of 13, I just knew that that was so wrong. And yet to him, it was just the most natural thing. And I've only since realized that this was really common within the communities, you know, that, that there was this sense of men kind of feeling like, you know, well, I, I don't know, it, it seemed to be encouraged that the men could somehow kind of initiate that first experience with young people. And of course, it's very much embedded in its time. And it was the 80s. And this was pre way pre me too and all of that but still I mean you know me from a conventional home with a mum who loved me with things that think things like that just didn't happen in my life and um yeah that was damaging and in the end I had to ask this man to leave because my father wouldn't so you know that was that was very much a, a, a case of me having to stand up and be a grown-up yeah oh yeah to have to advocate for yourself and to know that your parent there isn't, uh, really doesn't see it as wrong, but still you clearly did and it felt wrong. You know then, no, you're not going to be protected by your parent and it is up to you. And yeah, that does make you grow up faster. That's true. And were there other experiences like that where you thought you, you're the one who has to kind of lay down the law? Well, I kind of carried on being like that in lots of ways, lots of subtle ways, I suppose, in my relationship with my dad. And I think he was the classic kind of poor, you know, the, the, the eternal child, the Peter Pan. He never really wanted to grow up. And I think I didn't really realize this until much later. And I think, you know, I think alcoholism and addiction is very bound up with that as well. You know, there's, there's that sense of kind of opting out, isn't there? 
not taking responsibility for your life. So yeah, certainly towards the end, me and my brother were stepping in and having to do basic stuff for him. Not I mean, he was living in America at that time. So we were we were in the UK, but just having to, we were wiring money over to him. We when my dad went bankrupt and my brother had to phone the bank and you know I mean there was just there was a ton of stuff that we ended up having to do for him and yeah I mean his he became very deluded I've also kind of wondered about that with the cult as well that when you're involved with a cult or this a sort of community of people that is so far removed from the norm whether it just feeds that kind of propensity to be deluded in yourself which I think my dad always had you know he or you know from kind of looking back on what I was saying about when he was a young man sort of thinking that every woman on the underground tube was rubbing up against him <laughs> everyone wanted to have sex with him he was sent sent from from God to kind of somehow fulfill their needs you know I that was obviously sort of further accentuated within the cult because it was a, a kind of free-for-all environment. And also the sort of grandiose sense of self that you have been chosen, you know, even when he wasn't involved because he distanced himself from it in the last years of his life. But that part of him just got more and more insane. It got more and more detached from reality. Right. If it had not gone to this extreme, I could see why it would be healing, that he was this person who was picked on and bullied when he was young and he didn't have people there to protect him. He now can be the king of his castle. And that feels very nice. It still doesn't excuse him abandoning the children who need him and love him and the wife who's expecting him to be there and be faithful. But you know, the the appeal of it makes perfect sense. And I think also the detachment and needing to be okay with that so that you don't have the feelings that he probably had when he was seven and in boarding school that were horrible. So to find a place where you don't ever have to feel that again, it makes sense if we look at it objectively. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, and I've, I've reflected a lot on this as well, that, you know, and it, it does seem, I mean, I know women also come in under this category, but it does seem to be more predominantly men. There is a point in one's life when life catches up with you and you can't get away with behaving in, in certain ways anymore because, you know, at some point you have to settle down in yourself. I don't mean that like, you know, in a conventional sense, I just mean in yourself and take responsibility for yourself and to, and also just wake up to the fact that we are all ordinary beings you know we are all at the end of the day pretty similar and there is I mean I, I don't believe there is such thing as an enlightened being I think possibly there are people who are more susceptible to spiritualism or perception or I don't know more sensitive to the environment around them or psychic or whatever you know I think some people are more and you know and, and I think Bhagwan was talented and intelligent and he was well educated and he was very good at, at hypnotizing people, you know, he was good at seducing people. And my dad, equally, not equally, not, not to that point, but he definitely had charisma and he got his way for many, many years. But at some point, he ran out of luck. And, you know, and it happened to Bowen, he ran out of luck, the whole thing imploded on him. And he the veneer, but for many of his disciples, the veneer tarnished, the veil was lifted. You know, it did carry, it has carried on. You know, there are still many, many believers and many people who are not prepared to see him as, you know, anyone else. You know, they still want to see him as this superior being. 
And I'm curious about that. You know, I kind of think, well, what is that about? Is that is just that when you've chosen a particular life for so many years, you know, I mean, we're looking at kind of 40 years now, probably for, for a lot of these disciples who became disciples in the 70s. You know, does it just become increasingly more and more difficult to kind of face up to the truth? Yeah, a lot of people are afraid of really looking at how they've spent the last decade or two or more and suddenly seeing that it didn't get them any farther in their lives and didn't actually make them happy. It gave them the trappings of happiness, but it didn't really shift them or heal them inside. And they're left without anything. They're left without a career. They're left without their families a lot of the time. And so I think people who have a hard time managing their emotions will try to kind of have willful blindness for as long as possible. And then when you just can't anymore, it's devastating. And I think people sometimes intuit that something is going to be devastating. And so again, they will try to fend that off for as long as possible. It's a very difficult thing to feel that you were within this sort of magical spell, that these weren't ideas you were having on your own and decisions you were making on your own, and that the relationships that you made are conditional. They're not these true wonderful spiritual relationships. And the people who loved you or fawned over you maybe did that because of who you were there, but not because of who you are. All of that is very difficult. Yeah. And that that was something really struck me also when my dad died because he burned his bridges because of his kind of temperament, but it was also very much the temperament of the sannyasins. You know, Sheila was, she's probably quoted as saying that a number of times in World War Country, you know, this this sense of move forwards, don't, don't look back, you know, be reckless, be provocative. But when my dad died, you know, having, I was just really struck that he had lived his life as part of a community for so many years. And yet when he died, I didn't hear from anyone. I didn't get a card from anyone and no one went to his funeral. There was just me and my brother and my mom and my aunt and my brother's wife. And it was just us at his funeral. And I had no, no acknowledgement from any of these people. And, you know, and they had meant something to me as well as meant something to him. And I just found that extraordinary. I mean, you know, I, I will put a disclaimer here in that I have been in contact with people since, you know, the, the sannyasins. Um, I've had a lot of contact with them since. And and I know that my dad did mean something to those people. And it's been very healing for me to have contact with them and to reflect on my dad's life and, you know, and, and to hear about him from other people's perspective. But just exactly what you say, that I think that when you are a part of a community, I guess it kind of comes back to that kind of dilution. You know, it's like you don't have Perhaps, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know this because I didn't live in a community myself. But yeah, maybe it is the fact that you are under the terms of that community. And so perhaps that does stop you from really having those kind of very kind of strong, enduring one to one relationships that see you through your entire life. I mean, you know, my dad burned the bridges when he left my mom. So he had lots of friends before he left my mom. And, and he hurt a lot of people, you know, really quite deeply. And then he joined the community and then, but then he never kind of actively left the sannyasins. He just, he just sort of drifted away from them. But um, yeah, I think it's really interesting because, you know, I've got people in my life who I've known since I was in nursery school and 
they're still my they're like sisters you know they're still my closest people and I hope that they I, I know that they will be there to the end and that's something that yeah maybe my dad I know that he was very close to his second wife and I I do think I could be wrong but I think that they really did have a a very sort of loving relationship he had a very loving relationship with my mother for, for the time that that he was monogamous to her but you know I'm also interested in that whole thing of being unfaithful as well bringing someone else into a relationship you know it's like that in itself is such a defense mechanism isn't it it's it's such a defense from just fully being with somebody and wholeheartedly loving somebody so you know if you're not capable of doing that then you're not capable of of these relationships that sustain Right. I mean, I think if you have an anxious kind of attachment, then you're not going to feel comfortable just sort of settling into something comfortable. It's going to bring up a lot of emotions for you. And yeah, these other people are distractions. They're emotional buffers. And then you can kind of be like you can have one foot in one world, one foot in the other world, and you're never fully anywhere. Because for some people that makes them feel trapped and stuck rather than feeling kind of blessed that they were able to find something that makes them feel secure is very different. Yes. And, you know, you are very differently wired than he is, which I'm sure made it a challenge too to try to understand him because we assume that what's true for us, it's true for other people. But my life was very different and I was very blessed to have had a mother who was very enduring and loving and kept a very secure home for me and my brother and never criticised my dad either. I mean, she had a difficult decision because she didn't like what the cult was about. She didn't understand it. She didn't feel that it was a safe place for us. Um, and she was right in her instincts. She had to make a decision as to, you know, whether to allow us to remain in our father's life and remain seeing him when he didn't really show any interest in us. It's not like he was asking to see us, but we, she knew that we needed to see him. And I suppose that was a risk for her because then he could become this kind of messianic mystery to us, you know, even bigger than he was. And so, you know, the decision that she made, I think, was right, but it meant that we had to kind of find out the hard way, I suppose, that our dad was not quite as we hoped he would be. Right. Yeah. So to have someone who you really want to know, but who stays elusive is quite frustrating. And it helps me understand too, why you might have gotten connected to and attached to the people around him, because that kept you kind of connected to him in that way, even though it wasn't as direct, but still it was something. It was a part sort of connecting with his life in some way. And the story that you tell about his funeral and no one being there, it is, it's so startling to hear for people who haven't studied cults. <laughs> that is always how it's going to be when you leave a community where the community is more important and the belief system is more important than the individual. And so then, and, and I think death is also seen in a whole other way. And so it doesn't carry the same emotion. There's another way of kind of thinking about it and talking about it so that you don't have to have the uncomfortable emotions. And so how was death thought about from what you know in this group? I don't really know. Um, I mean, I've heard stories about key people who have died, like, you know, everyone brings up the story of, Vivek, who was Bhagwan's closest carer, and so the, a woman I think he had a, 
an enduring long relationship with who died while the cult was very much still active. And she died under suspicious circumstances. But I think in that case, you know, she was really key. She was one of the key key members, um, but her her death and, and sort of funeral was very much covered up. And there was a kind of silencing about it. And of course, with stories like that, I mean, you know, I'm interpreting this, I wasn't there, but it feels to me that there is a disposable element to it that, as you say, it's like, you know, they are important when they're there and that they're serving the community and that they're serving Osho. But actually then, you know, either they become a hindrance for some reason, and then, you know, there are rumours that she was killed off, that it was a, an enforced suicide, that it was an overdose. Um, they become, you know, problematic and they are then driven out or, you know, they pass away because of mental health issues or depression, which is another one of the rumours. And somehow that's also covered up because that reveals a kind of realness and an ordinariness of somebody who's very close to Bhagwan, who is living in this sort of spiritual realm, which is untouchable. And maybe that in itself becomes inconvenient and, you know, shameful and something that needs to be kind of covered up. And I wonder whether, you know, in the case of my dad, I mean, even though he'd been quite detached from the community, I mean, obviously alcoholism and dereliction and losing everything and becoming a tramp on the street, which is pretty much what happened to my dad, is shameful in itself and people don't know how to handle that. You know, they don't know. I mean, I wondered whether that was partly why I didn't get any cards, um, you know, even from people who, you know, were not sannyasins. Maybe they felt embarrassed. They didn't know quite how to kind of express this kind of, you know, this, this anomaly. But it's also life, isn't it? I mean, you know, this happens to people all the time. And it's it's a really kind of awful part of life. It shows frailty and it shows vulnerability. And and I and you know, and, and I mean, you know, interestingly for my dad, I think part of the reason that he kind of so catastrophically died was because he was so incapable of seeing himself as vulnerable, seeing himself as ordinary. He wasn't capable of admitting that he had lost control of his life. And so it was easier for him in a way just to kind of go in a big blowout like that. And, you know, and maybe that also links to the whole kind of cult mentality because it is, it thrives off being different and better and bigger and more superior. So, you know, and death is a very dirty, basic kind of earthy thing, isn't it? It doesn't fit into that narrative. No, I think that a lot of illnesses are covered up in cultic groups. I mean, people really go through a lot of neglect too because of it. I mean, you know, I, there are many cults that I think should be sued for malpractice um, because they kept people from getting treatment because this was the thing that was supposed to protect you. And then if it doesn't, you're doing it wrong. And so then I think a lot of people just didn't want to admit that they were sick because the focus then would have been on them as the culprit rather than getting the sensitivity and sympathy for it. It's a change. It turns everything around. I think also people within groups like this, their value is based upon their devotion and their usefulness, not just their inherent value of being a human being. And so as soon as you're not as useful, then the feelings start to, I think, just dissipate towards you, which is 
it's very cruel if you when you look at it from the outside, and I'm sure from the inside too, it feels that way, but you've learned to avoid your feelings so you don't fully feel it. But it's a shame. I think that's also why it was really tough for the kids because they, and again, where they had to grow up before they, their age was because they were not useful, you know, and they were, they were, they didn't choose to be there. You know, they were there because their parents had brought them. And I mean, Osho was quite clear that he, he saw children as an obstruction to their parents' spiritual development. And so he wasn't that keen on kids anyway. But also towards the end of the community, the kind of, you know, the, the, the community as we know it in World War Country before 1985, when the whole thing imploded, the kids were sent to work. You know, they were, they, I mean, I have a friend who lived in Medina, which is where my dad was in, in earlier years, which became a school in the last years. and. Kids were were ferried there in shuttle buses from different communes around Europe without their parents, and some of them were very young. And she was sent there at age 13 on her own, and she had to care for the younger kids. But she also had to work, and she worked in the kitchen, you know, for 14-hour days. And she there was no schooling for her. There was no nurturing of her. There was no there was nothing there for her as an individual. She was just seen as an adult. That was her role, was to do what the adults did. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it, it all makes so much sense. And, and of course, when you're in it and you're, you're not able to kind of, you know, stand back and compare it, because it, it must be the same in so many cults. Yeah, and also, you know, just, and then you think about these kids and what happens when they get ill, you know, because kids get ill all the time. That must be an inconvenience as well. That must be, because it doesn't kind of fit the narrative, does it? you know, of being, of being a self-sufficient sort of disciple, you're suddenly in need. Right. So there's so much to say about this. It sort of reminds me of these paintings from, you know, hundreds of years ago where children are depicted as just smaller versions of adults. <laughs> and so I think in some environments, that is how they're seen. And they're also not given an opportunity to just be learning and growing and making mistakes and having their needs and being able to attach. That attachment, I think, also threatens the leader. So I think they're kept away. And so there's so much just based on really tending to what the leader needs and what the leader is feeling. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, and that that's very, very clear to me now that, yeah, children are literally a distraction. They, and they are a distraction from their parents' se- uh, spiritual. I was going to say sexual. That's a that's a good um, right, right. Good Freudian slip. Uh-huh. Uh, they are um, a distraction to their parents' spiritual development because they simply need their parents. And and a parent who has their instinct in the right place, we are programmed and wired to care for our children. And I think it's shocking that a whole sort of community or or religious movement can so obstruct that natural need. It keeps human nature going, you know, it it keeps the next generation happy and healthy. And and somehow it, it obstructs that even. Right. It's very true. I'm wondering, before continuing on with your own personal story, if there are other stories to kind of shed light on things that you noticed happening in the ashram or just within the community. I mean, the one about dressing in pajamas and having teddy bears. I mean, certainly that is quite, it's quite a visual. It's actually reminding me of this 
cult leader whose name was Sri Chinmoy, and he ran a lot of his classes in the UN building in New York, which gave him great credibility. But he called the followers, the men and women who were his followers, boys and girls. And then he was the father and he couldn't be the father unless he had children. So he made them into children. It was very interesting. It's the first time I'd heard about that. So what can you share with us sort of behind the scenes glimpses? I think, I mean, I can only really talk about Medina because that was the community I went to. I didn't go to the ashram in India. Um, and really, it's just, yeah, I mean, it was a colourful, busy, friendly place in lots of ways. But there, I do remember, you know, just a kind of an, a sort of edginess, you know. I mean, we, we would move bedrooms a lot um, because my dad was never in any set room. So whenever we went to stay, we were kind of sleeping on his floor in whatever room he was in. And sometimes we'd be sleeping next to the active meditation room. So, you know, we'd hear lots of kind of grunting and screaming <laughs> during meditation and and then other times actually he lived in a communal bedroom for a bit so and, and these beds were kind of only separated by sort of sheer organza and me and my brother did go up once during the day to get something and found a couple making love or you know I, I used that word in, in a kind of kind way because it didn't really appear, appear like that and that the woman was lying back reading a book <laughs> so I do remember things like that just sort of thinking oh wow this is weird you know this is this is kind of not quite what we're used to so I think it was very weird to go step into that world from quite a kind of normal upbringing and then also I remember a sort of edge like a sort of passive aggression like I mean you know one of the things with the sannyasins was that there was this real emphasis on being joyful and saying yes you know it was about surrender it was about being open to experience and open to the world and positive and optimistic and, and you know and smiling and having a great time and and actually as you imagine there were lots of quite damaged people who joined that cult and so you know and and also people were screwing around and they were trying to hold on to their relationships but there was you know this constant threat around them of other lovers you know because that was that was the culture was that you you know, I mean, couples who turned up there were separated often. They were put into different... I mean, this definitely happened later in, in Rajneeshpuram, that, that couples were put into separate rooms with other people in order to kind of try and separate them. So, yeah, there was a kind of, you know, through that sort of veneer of joy and and light and love, there was... I, I definitely picked up a, a sense of aggression actually aggression and unhappiness from certain members and there was predation you know even from a young age even at Medina when I was like eight or nine and I'd turn up in my little school uniform you know with my pigtails there were men who would look at me in lascivious ways and make comments about me that were inappropriate yeah so I, I I experienced that but yeah I mean you know it, it in my dad's community in, in Italy, it was much smaller scale. Well, I had a wonderful time there. there were, I had lots of, I have lo lots of lovely memories of being there. And, and, and I, I made some lovely relationships with some of my dad's friends as well. So I have lots of really lovely memories of being in that house. It was, and it was, it was really lovely to be in a kind of environment with lots of different nationalities and different sexualities. You know, one of my closest friends at my dad's was gay, homosexual. You know, and I, I wouldn't have been exposed to that kind of thing in my life. And that, that, that I saw as a real plus. 
we traveled to a big community quite often that was nearby called Miasto, which is, I think it's still running in Italy and Siena. And, you know, we'd have midnight uh, meditations with the full moon and, and sit out on the, on the pebbles. And, you know, it was, you know, I have some lovely memories of that, but yeah, but also it was challenging. You know, it was a challenging time. And, and I was always felt quite sort of, I felt very different from the other kids at Medina. I felt, you know, it was quite cliquey, understandably, because that was their home. And I was different. I was coming in and, you know, they didn't really know me. But there was a sense of always feeling slightly on the periphery, you know, sort of looking in, wanting to belong. And I got my dad to buy me all the red clothes from the commune shop so that I could dress in red, even though I wasn't the sannyasin. And you know, stuff like that. So, you know, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. Right. Certainly is. When you say that you were not like the children who were there, how were they? How were they different? They were just very confident and beautiful and kind of interesting and quite forward. And, you know, there was a, there was a whiff of that sort of sexual knowingness about them. And, you know, which I think you would expect. In an environment like that, and just yeah, I mean, there were there were also Sanyasin kids in North London where I grew up. So you know, because a lot of them came back to North London after Medina closed down, and they went to regular schools. And so, and there was definitely just an air of kind of just being grown up before their years. But you know, of course, to a younger person like me, it was like that. You know, I looked up to that and just thought that was really cool. I look back on it now, and I think you know, I understand why they were like that. And you know, really, their their community was their friends. And, you know, I think there were adults there who did care for them, but some of the parents were there for their kids. But I think on the whole, their parents were put to other tasks. You know, they were distracted with other stuff. It was a very different upbringing for them. Right. I want to come back to a word also that you use that was interesting when you're talking about people needing to say yes and being positive and smiling. One would think that the opposite of that would be sadness, but you said aggression. That's so interesting that there was something aggressive. There was something intimidating, something harsh. What did you notice? I noticed this, maybe it was just a kind of mood, maybe just an undercurrent uh, with certain people. But there was one particular incident in Medina, which I do remember really well, which was when me and some friends, my brother and a friend of ours, who we, we did get very close to there, were just fooling around and running around. And, and we, we ran into one, of the, I think it was one of the meditation rooms, and there were lots of mattresses in there. And we were playing on them and stuff. And a guy came in and told us to leave and said it, we weren't allowed in there. And, you know, we should come out. I think we were a bit leery to him or something. And he grabbed my brother or his friend, I can't remember. And yeah, I really, really lost it with him. So, you know, angrily. And and I, I seem to remember that he kind of, you know, grabbed him, pinned him down. You know, it was it was scary and, and aggressive and nasty. And of course, you know, they, they were also exorcising this part of themselves in some of their groups. You know, some of the groups were quite I mean, there's there's footage in Marvel Country of them being quite violent and and in the in the early days. So you know, that was also part of the kind of let it all out expression, wasn't it? It was that, you know, be yourself wherever that leads you. So, yeah, I guess that was happening. And, you know, in fights and, you know, like, I mean, in, in my dad's house, 
in Italy, you heard everything. You know, the, the windows were open. You heard everyone having sex. You also heard everyone having arguments. So it was kind of hot and cold. You know, it was like it just everything was everything was out there. Wow, it's incredible. And so I'm curious, being exposed to environments where there aren't the same kinds of boundaries in terms of physical behavior and, and interactions, what was that like for you as you were growing into adolescence and young adulthood? Did it affect you in any way? I think looking back, I see that I was kind of in between worlds. So, you know, I was living with my mom, but I was always longing for my dad. And I was longing for this exciting world that he was a part of. And I wanted to belong there because I wanted to belong with him. And I wanted to be accepted by him. And, you know, for all the reasons that you pointed out as well. And and it was also very exciting. You know, he lived all over the world and he was, you know, he was often absent and he was, you know, an exciting personality and I loved him. I found it very hard to embed myself in my environment at home, even though I loved my home and I loved my mom and I loved my friends and I, you know, I kind of got along at school a bit. But I I started to find that very, very hard as I got became a teenager and was I started truanting from quite a young age and and just basically couldn't I didn't feel that I could like I fitted in. So I think I think probably what it did for me psychologically was that I, I didn't really belong anywhere because I wasn't really wholly at home because I was always longing to be somewhere else. But then I also didn't belong where I was when I was with my dad. And also I wasn't accepted there. I wasn't I mean I was accepted, but I wasn't welcomed. I wasn't I wasn't made to feel loved by him. So you know, I was sort of searching for something that actually made me feel unhappy. So in terms of kind of growing up and boundaries, I think boundaries were definitely more malleable than they might have been. And, you know, perhaps I kind of didn't learn the sort of polite way of being, perhaps. Although I did, of course, from my mom, because she's amazing. But, you know, there, but there was obviously an influence as well, you know, which was also very beguiling. I think it certainly set me up for relationships with men who, um, well, I, my first boyfriend, you know, when I was 15, my first boyfriend was 32. So my first sort of significant boyfriend was way older than me, you know, more than double my age. And I was with him for over a year. And, you know, and that again, it just ostracized me from my community. It ostracized me from my friends. I wasn't, I loved my friends, but I was not going out with my friends because I was going out with him and he had a different life you know he was a hairdresser and lived in Notting Hill and we went clubbing and you know and and it was totally unequal in that I was a kid and I should have been doing my exams at school and I was truanting to hang out with a man and so that was just you know it was just wrong and that kind of carried on in that I often you know throughout my 20s and stuff I I chose men who were either quite unavailable or were quite sort of emotionally dominant or quite a lot older than me. So there was never that sense of kind of just being with someone and knocking about with them and being yourself with them. You know, I, I, I think I kind of from quite a young age, I I didn't really trust to be myself fully with somebody because I didn't really know who I was, I guess. So that took quite a long time to kind of work through. Yeah. And as you describe it, again, it's all understandable in, in terms of what you're looking for in a father figure and then what kind of personality you're used to being around. But also, I think 
When you have a parent who's evasive and elusive, a lot of times people then get into relationships with people who are the same so that they can have a corrective experience. They can find a way to get that person's attention. And so that's not a healthy relationship. It feels satisfying in those moments, but they are too few and far between. Yeah, and I totally get that. I think there's that sense of familiarity. Like I've met you before, you know, I know that you're not good for me because you're just like my dad, but it's comfortable. And I think that corrective thing also is something I remember feeling very distinctly asking myself this question of why am I putting myself in the firing line? Why do I keep on putting myself back in the situation that I know is going to do me harm? I remember thinking maybe it's because I will master it. Maybe this time I'll be able to be in control. I'll, I'll, I'll catch his heart. I'll get him to finally love me. And of course, it never happened. And you were always left in that same sort of, you know, disappointed state of feeling, feeling that you're loved less than you love, really. And that I carried on in that sort of mentality with my dad right to the end, because, you know, even when he was dying of alcoholism, there was a sense of in me that I could somehow save him, you know, I would be the one who would save him. Which, you know, you realize is so dangerous because that's what leads to those codependent relationships, you know. Right. Seems like he did have addictive pieces of himself that led him into very unhealthy situations and unhealthy habits. It's hard when you see that happening, when when you see that someone's life is getting derailed or it's declining because of something that is avoidable. It's hard to just sort of sit back and just sort of watch someone slowly kill themselves. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, really awful. That was the question. Was it avoidable? And I wasn't sure whether, you know, I think that also kind of ventures into that question of addiction and personality disorders, you know. It's like, can you be so far gone? Is your perception of the world so so different that you've some you know, it's like it's like a, a kind of switch has triggered, you know. Have you have you turned over onto the other side of that? Although my brother always felt that my dad had a choice. I'm not sure towards the end whether he did, but at, at some point he had a choice and he continued to choose the destructive route, you know, or the or the kind of the self fulfilling route you know the the easy fix which in the end caught up with him Mm, okay well as now we're coming to a close of our conversation even though I could talk to you for a long time is there something that you want to let people know you know to sort of learn from your experience or maybe to explain why you're talking about it now the journey of writing this book and talking about it, you know, even having this conversation with you now has been extraordinary, really, because, well, for one, it's given me a voice and it has allowed me to master my narrative, which is something I was always trying to do. You know, I was trying to do it in the wrong way through getting um, reassurance or recognition from people who could never give me recognition. But I took that into my own hands and I presented my story to the world. But I did it in a way that was beautiful in that I spent a lot of time crafting this book and, and, you know, it took me many years to write. And now it's something I feel really proud of. What I'm hoping it will do is it will enable a space for other people, you know, like me who have been in the shadow of narcissistic parents or parents who have joined cults or 
or it just been dragged along, you know, and not had autonomy or not had a choice in the decisions that their parents have made. And then they have been affected by that. And I know that there are lots of people of my generation who experienced that and also perhaps didn't get a good education and didn't get the means to then be able to express themselves in the way that I have managed to do. You know, I was very lucky. I truanted from school, but I was lucky that my mom was there as a, as a constant and also that she was a writer and I was, you know, I was around that world. So I had a lot of support. But for me, I want this to be an inspiration for people. I want people to feel that they can step up and speak their narrative, whether that be speaking in a podcast or recording a podcast or writing. And also that, you know, because I have mentored writers in the past and everybody can do it, even if you have had a difficult upbringing and you've not had that education, you know, there is a space for these voices. There's a space for these narratives. And particularly now, actually, I think this is a time when a lot of people of my generation are, are coming into themselves and having their kids, their own kids and really questioning, you know, their parents' decisions. Yeah, if I can encourage people to speak up and be a master of their story and be in charge of their narrative, I think that would be the best outcome for, for me for this, yeah. It's mm, beautifully said. So I think also just knowing that you have tried to understand your father and his history and his wiring and his issues, it helps so much, I think, to understand or to know for a fact that he didn't leave you because you had no value, that he left you for other reasons that were about him protecting himself. But it's not a reflection on how important you are as a person. And a lot of people who don't find out that their parent has a disorder do think that they just weren't important enough for the parent to stay. And so it's a very important insight. And I'm glad you've had a chance to to work on that. Yeah. And I think that definitely comes from research as well, doesn't it? And sitting with the subject and really trying to understand it. And I think that's also why these kinds of podcasts are so important, because, you know, it's it's just reconfirming those little niggly questions that you have about cult mentality or manipulative behavior or whatever you know the more you you immerse yourself in these stories of people who have come through and, and survived and then can talk about it and reflect on it the more you don't feel alone with that and it's yeah as you say it's not personal this has happened to many 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 people yes millions actually yeah incredible so thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for putting it on paper. That's a very exciting thing and people will hear your story and learn from it. And I'm so happy you've had a chance to have your voice, find your voice, use your voice and develop that narrative. So it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Lily, for sharing your personal story with us. And thank you for writing what you've written so that people can hear more about your own experiences. This is the human side of cult involvement. This is how it affects the others. When you look at all these cult documentaries, often that's what's missing. How did it impact 
the parents who lost their child? How did it impact a spouse? How did it impact siblings who lost their siblings to this? There are so many times, too, that we just sort of see people who are wearing orange robes and we just think they're different from us and we don't think of them as someone's child and we don't necessarily think of them as someone's parent. And we wonder then, once we do realize that they could be someone's parent, who they left at home and how they explained why they left. Sometimes people bring their kids to these places and then you have kids raised in organizations that make them feel like they're a fish out of water when they leave it. But one of the things that happens is that when we hear these stories, it becomes, I think, harder to just discount people who get involved in these groups. You see that they're doing something like Lily said, like she said her father was trying to escape himself. There are people who are searching and constantly searching. And if it's not one group, it's another. And if it's not one something that is intense, then it's the next thing that's intense. And it's like they're trying to figure out who to be and how to feel. And they are trying to figure out what direction they're supposed to be going in. But when we talk to kids or when I talk to kids, when I talk to the siblings and sometimes parents of those who are deeply, deeply involved in organizations like this, I hear a lot of what Lily talked about. When I asked her about what it felt like to be in her father's presence, she talked about how he would be there, but not there. You know that there is this, there is this distance between you, that you're being looked at through this filter of belief, or you're being judged for not believing. The group stands right between you. It's this invisible wall. And a lot of people describe something really disconcerting, which is that often when you're connecting with a loved one, you can tell there's a connection by looking in their eyes. You can see their body language too. There's a warmth to it, a comfort. But when people are talking to someone who has gotten involved in a group that's really taken over their way of thinking, but also has given them a lens through which they are supposed to look at life and look at you, you feel the distance. You feel the wall and you feel, even though it's invisible, that it's impenetrable. And until you start to see some sort of connection and life coming back into that person's eyes, you can be one foot away from them, but feel completely alone in the room. It's a very, very painful thing to deal with, especially when it's apparent. And so there are a lot of times that kids deal with these losses, kind of ambiguous losses, where the person is still alive, they're still there, but they're not there. The other thing that adds to this sense of loss is the fact that there is a lack of compassion, which is a common element to this, to this separation, where Lily might have been feeling that she had a longing for her father, but her father would not have necessarily related to that or responded to it with compassion, with regret with an apology, but rather feel very much sure that he'd made the right decision for himself. And there are a lot of people who will say, I feel like the person who has gotten involved in a group has lost their humanity to it. It's a common occurrence. There is a blankness, a coldness. And sometimes when I talk to people who have left a cult, they talk about it themselves. They feel disconnected. They feel cold. 
They feel like they have an explanation for everything. They feel like they are perfectly fine blaming other people for their own pain. Well, they must have brought it on themselves or it's because they didn't get involved in this group. If they had, then this bad thing wouldn't have happened to them. There's a very dismissive attitude. And friends have a hard time with it, but children have an especially hard time with it. And so for the people out there who have left a cultic group, you might need to learn how society does it, how to have compassion, how to learn about what people need in that moment, not only what to say, but what look to offer them and to really see them, see the person in front of you, not through the lens of the group, not through certain teachings, not through this impenetrable wall that you think is really for your protection, but ends up just being for division. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.